Welcome to Watchmen on the Wall, a daily outreach of Southwest Radio Ministries and SWRC.com. Today, we continue our series looking at the Shroud of Turin, and Pastor Larry Spargimino will address an important issue from the Bible that many families are facing. God is still on the throne, and prayer changes things. As we begin our time together today, I want to encourage you to get a copy of our Prophetic Observer newsletter. The Prophetic Observer is a publication of Southwest Radio Ministries that examines events which have prophetic significance. To the world, these situations might seem trivial or unimportant, but to the Christian, it shows God fulfilling His plan and purpose for mankind. In each issue of the Prophetic Observer, we examine topics or events that relate to the fulfillment of end-time prophecies. The Prophetic Observer has become one of our more popular features. Many of our listeners use these articles as a witnessing tool to friends and family or for church or home Bible studies. Sign up today and start receiving the Prophetic Observer monthly newsletter, 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. And start getting the Prophetic Observer today. Yesterday, Russ Brialt began looking at the exciting evidence the Shroud of Turin has to offer. Let's jump back in to examining this exciting piece of history. The very first piece of evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ was the burial cloth of the Lord. The Bible says in John 20, 3-6, Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple, and came to the sepulcher. So they ran both together, and the other disciple did outrun Peter, and came first to the sepulcher, and he, stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. Then cometh Simon Peter following him, and he went into the sepulcher, and seeth the linen clothes lie. Does the burial cloth that Peter and John saw still exist? And is it kept in a church in Turin, Italy today? Joining me again on the Watchman on the Wall to discuss the Shroud of Turin is one of the world's leading experts on the Shroud, Russ Brialt. Russ, welcome back to the Watchman on the Wall. Hey, glad to be back. Thank you. Well, last time you described the Shroud of Turin, but in case someone missed that program, would you tell us again what is the Shroud of Turin? Well, the Shroud is a long, narrow linen cloth, about 14 feet long, three and a half feet wide, and it's etched with the faint image of a bearded, crucified man. man appears to be from 5 foot 10 to 6 feet in height, and this image bears all the wounds that were sustained by Jesus as recorded in the Gospels. We're talking about a crown of thorns with blood scrapes and flows all around the head, scourge marks all across the body, over 120 scourge marks. There was in the wrist, there was in the feet, a wound in the side, legs not broken, even the cloth itself correlates with the gospel in that it is made of a three-to-one herringbone pattern weave, doable in the first century, but very expensive to do. And, of course, it was Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man, who purchased the fine linen cloth. So the shroud certainly, in terms of what we see, correlates perfectly with the gospel account. Last time we were talking about the blood on the shroud. If the blood is not paint, is it animal blood or is it human? Well, serological tests show that it is human blood. It is AB blood type. And, of course, is the, we did the DNA, and it is human male DNA. And we did that in 1995. And so it is clearly human blood. 
The bloodstains on the shroud go through the cloth, but the image doesn't, correct? That's absolutely correct, and that's one of the top attributes of the cloth. That would be it. The fact that when you look at the shroud, you see very clearly the image of the man, but this image, the image lies in between these, what appears to be two parallel lines with like burns and scorch marks because the shroud was in a fire in 1532. It was kept in a silver box. The top of the box melted and a glob of molten silver fell down onto it, burning all the way through it, creating a series of burns. It looks like kind of like an origami burn pattern. And so that's so the image lies in between those parallel lines of burns and patches and scorch marks. And then during the fire, it was doused with water. You have a pattern of water stains all over the shroud. And then you have a pattern of blood stains. Well, if you flip the cloth over, you would see all that. The blood, the water stains, the burns go all the way through. But the image of the man does not. So in other words, the image of the man is a purely superficial phenomenon affecting only the top one to two microfibers. It is exceedingly superficial, and yet it is identical intensity, top to bottom, front to back. It almost seems like you need a piece of technology to accomplish that. So this is one of the great mysteries of the shroud, is how can this image be so superficial? And, you know, as we said before, you know, without the use of any artistic substances. Russ, didn't researchers also find a type of limestone on the shroud that is unique to one location in the world? Magnifying 2,500 times, we can see microscopic particles of limestone all over the cloth. And it is travertine aragonite limestone, which is the same limestone that is common to the hills and tombs around Jerusalem. Now, I mean, travertine aragonite limestone can be found elsewhere in the world. But there's another thing that we found, which is called magnesium limestone. And magnesium limestone is characteristic of a rock formation called dolomite. And dolomite is a very dense, hard rock. And the tomb of the Holy Sepulchre, which is in a tomb that was made, that was built or carved out of dolomite, which is really interesting because the fact that we see this magnesium limestone characteristic of dolomite is really intriguing because that's very unique. Travertine aragonite limestone it might be found elsewhere in the world, but to have dolomite on there too, that really puts it right there in Jerusalem. What about pollen on the shroud? Didn't researchers also find pollen on the Shroud of Turin? There's lots of pollen on the shroud. Most of it is in clusters on the shroud, meaning that the pollen got there because flowers were laid under the surface of the cloth. It's not airborne pollen. Now, there's some airborne pollen, but most of it is found in clusters. And there are several pollens that are unique to the Middle East. To which Dr. Avinoam Danin, the leading botanist with the Hebrew University, was convinced, based on the botanical evidence, that the shroud originated within about a 20-kilometer radius of Jerusalem. Wow. Let's talk about some of the common objections, Russ. Would you answer some of these objections for us? Some would object and say that thousands of people are crucified. So how do we know that this is the shroud of Jesus? What evidence is there to prove that the image on the shroud is that of Jesus Christ? Well, we're just applying forensic science, which means, you know, let's do an analysis of the body. Let's do an autopsy, and then we see how everything lines up with the gospel account. Most significantly is the crown of thorns, because, I mean, 
who else was given a crown of thorns because right. it was not a routine of crucifixion. It was a mockery for the man who claimed to be king of the Jews. And then we talked earlier about the severe scourging. Most people were either crucified or scourged. In other words, you were either crucified to be executed or scourged and released. And we know that that happened to Paul about five times. So why was Jesus scourged so badly? Because Pontius Pilate didn't want to kill him. So he had him scourged, almost to the point of death, hoping he wouldn't have to kill him. And then you have a side wound, which occurred after death, because of the clear separation of blood and blood serum that we see. And that is consistent with the Gospel account, because when the soldiers came by late that afternoon, and the two thieves on either side of Jesus were both still alive, they broke their legs with a large wooden mallet weighing about 15 pounds. Can't stand on broken legs, die from asphyxia, the inability to breathe. But it says, but when they came to Jesus, they noticed he was already dead. Therefore, they did not break his legs. But instead, before they could release him for burial to Joseph, they stabbed him in the side to make sure he was dead. So everything is there that is unique to the crucifixion of Jesus. And, you know, I wouldn't want to venture into statistical probabilities, but I can't imagine it's a shot of anyone else. Some people, mainly those in the evangelical community, object to the authenticity of the shroud because they say it's Catholic. Would you answer that objection? <laughs> My favorite objection, I'm saying, well, of course it's Catholic. It's been in France and Italy for 700 years. It's <laughs> not going to be a Baptist relic. <laughs> and before it was Catholic, it was with the Orthodox in Constantinople. And then prior to that, it was in Odessa, which is in southern Turkey. Prior to that, it was in Jerusalem. It traverses through history, and now in the 20th century and 21st, it engaged Protestants through the realm of science, as opposed to being a relic to be venerated, as Catholics would want to do, it is an artifact to be analyzed. And so it has really captured the imagination of all three branches of Christianity, Orthodox, where it kind of originated and then it was taken from Constantinople in 1204 and then brought to France. 1204 was the Fourth Crusade, and it was stolen by the French and then shows up in Luray, France in 1356 and on to Italy in 1578. The Shroud has a long history that well predates when it was in Catholic hands. How about those who say that the Shroud violates the Second Commandment? That's interesting because, you know, thou shalt not make any graven image, and the shroud is clearly not a graven image. In fact, it's very interesting that when the shroud became very prominent in the 6th century, it was described as the true likeness of Christ not made by human hands. And that phrase, not made by human hands, is a clear reference to the Second Commandment. <laughs> it's basically saying, look, we didn't do this. We don't know who did, but we did not do this. And it's very you know, interesting from that standpoint. But you know, it's also clear, too, is that the Second Commandment is pretty obvious. When Moses came down from the mount and Aaron had crafted a golden calf, all the Israelites were dancing around it, worshiping the calf as if it represented anything in heaven. So it's clear what that commandment refers to, because fast forward to the New Testament, where Jesus is described as the image of the living God, the expressed manifestation of his being. I mean, Jesus says, if you have seen me, you've seen the Father. 
so all of a sudden, this God of the Old Testament that no one ever saw, not even Moses, is now manifest in the flesh where everybody sees them. And so clearly something changed going from Old Testament to New. Russ, some object to the shroud because they say that the Bible speaks of two cloths and the shroud is one cloth. But isn't there another cloth, a face cloth? Yes, this is called the Sudarium of Oviedo. It's in Oviedo, Spain. It was brought there in 614 from Jerusalem and it's clearly linked to the shroud. This cloth is a about the size of a small bath towel, about 20 by 30 inches, and was used to cover the face of Jesus after he had given up his spirit. And you can imagine one of the women probably went up to the centurion and said, may we cover his face? (laughs) He said, yeah, go ahead and be quick about it. So they put a little step stool up to the cross and cover his face with this cloth while they're waiting to get permission to release the body over to Joseph. And this cloth would have remained on his face until they got him to the side of the tomb. And then it would have been removed, rolled up, placed next to the body, would not have stayed on his face, because this was just a cloth meant to cover the face of the dead, as well as to collect blood and plural fluids. Because what happens in crucifixion is that the lungs fill up with plural fluid because of the ordeal. So every time they moved to the body, there would be this, Plural effusion that would come out of the mouth and out of the nose. It's disgusting. But that's all we see on this sudarium is a pattern of blood stains and a pattern of plural fluid that correlates with the shroud. Clearly, it was a cloth associated with the crucifixion and is connected to the shroud by blood stain patterns as well as pollen. That's a really fascinating cloth as well. Not nearly as fascinating as the shroud because it doesn't have an image on it. But nonetheless, that is the napkin referred to in John's Gospel. Russ, there are some who object to the Shroud of Turin because they say that Jesus was wrapped in strips of cloth like a mummy, and they refer to the story of Lazarus in the Bible. How would you answer that objection? First of all, the word strips only appears in certain translations and also only appears in the Gospel of John. Mark, Luke, Matthew only mention a linen shroud. They don't mention strips. And so people fixate on that one verse in John. Just looking at archaeologically, the Jews were not winding their bodies with ships of linen circa first century. Even the Egyptians were no longer doing it in first century. And so these strips of linen are referred to probably binding strips to bind the wrist, bind the chin, bind the ankles, and then a single linen shroud wrapping the whole body because that would have been consistent with someone who died from violent death. Russ, would you comment on that infamous carbon-14 test? Well, it is infamous because the historical trail clearly takes us back to at least the 6th century, and they're saying it dates to the 14th century, which is clearly nonsense, is because now we know for a fact that the shroud was in Constantinople in 1204 and stolen during the Fourth Crusade, And 1204 is already older than the oldest alleged carbon date of 1260. And the cloth that was in Constantinople arrived there in 944 from Edessa. So historically, we know that the carbon date is flat out wrong. And now there's been other dating methodologies that have been applied that would show it much closer to the first century. So, you know, they took one sample from the outside corner edge 
where it had been handled hundreds of times over the centuries. And if you were looking for the worst possible sample location, that's where you'd cut. And, of course, that's what they did. And so, and with only one sample instead of three, they violated the protocol. There was supposed to be three samples. There was only one. And then you take that one sample from the worst possible place on the shroud, and it doesn't line up with the historical trail, obviously we have a problem. Russ, I've heard you say that the Shroud of Turin is a picture of the rapture. How so? How is the Shroud of Turin a picture of the rapture? Well, that's exciting because I look at the Shroud as having multiple messages. It harkens us to the past because it brings us back to a historical event. That's the literal, physical resurrection of Jesus. And the message in the present is that on the cloth we see the price that was paid for our salvation. When we see all the image and the pattern of blood stain, that's what it costs. The scripture uses very clear words relating to transaction. We've been bought, we've been purchased, we've been redeemed, we've been ransomed. You know, and so the shroud shows that price. Even more than that is you're right. I think the shroud is a picture of the rapture. Because if you ask the question of what happened to Jesus in the tomb, there were no eyewitnesses because it was a big stone put in front of the entrance. And so if you're going to ask what happened to Jesus in the tomb, you have to piece it together looking at other verses of Scripture. And there's a great one on the Mount of Transfiguration, which occurred about six months prior to the crucifixion. Jesus was up to the top of a hill, and he says he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun itself. So Jesus is transformed into a being of light before the crucifixion. How does he appear to Saul, who becomes Paul on the road to Damascus in a blinding flash of light, so bright that Saul is blinded for three days? So if you were to do a straight Bible study, I think you'd have to assume that when Jesus' soul came zooming back into that lifeless body, that there was an explosion of light and then gone. Now that's my view. Now what's interesting is that researchers with the ENEA, is the European Agency for New Technologies, they've been experimenting with high-power ultraviolet lasers. And they determined that a 40-nanosecond burst on a UV laser achieves the very same depth and coloration as we see on the shroud. Now, that's exciting. is because the best scripture that provides an explanation as to what happened to Jesus is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51-52, where Paul says, Behold, I show you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. How? In the twinkling of an eye, in a flash. And it says, For that which is perishable must put on imperishable. And so Paul is talking about an instantaneous transformational event in the future. Yet that's exactly what happened to Jesus in the tomb. Now, how do I know that? Because Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection. If he's the first fruit, then that means we're the rest of the fruit that comes later at the end of the age. And the shroud could very well be a snapshot, a photograph of that event. And so from that standpoint, the shroud is a picture of the rapture. It's a picture of what's going to happen to us at some point in the future. And I pray it soon. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. If someone wanted you to speak at their church or event, how would they contact you? Well, you go to my website, shroudencounter.com. You can email me at russ at shroudencounter.com. I'd be delighted to bring a Shroud Encounter, 90 minutes, everything on the big screen, walk you through. This is an exciting presentation. 
what the shroud is, where it's been, crucifixion, resurrection, all the way to the end where we get to doubting Thomas, which is what I think the shroud is all about. I think it's why the shroud exists, for the doubting Thomases of the world. The complete two-day conversation with Russ Briald on the Shroud of Turin is available on CD when you call 1-800-652-1144. That's 1-800-652-1144. Today, we are offering on DVD three of Russ Briald's presentations on the Shroud of Turin. His presentations make use of over 200 superb images and unfolds like a CSI investigation. You're riveted as each clue is revealed and becomes another piece of a grand puzzle as the mystery of the Shroud is explored. The Shroud of Turin, A Picture of the Rapture, is available on DVD when you call toll-free 1-800-652-1144 or order online, swrc.com. Families today face many dangers, adultery being one of the most dangerous. Pastor Larry Spargimino comes now to share how to protect your marriage from the sin of adultery. Adultery is becoming commonplace. It is not only a problem in the world, but it is becoming prevalent in the church. But let's face it, we are not loving our neighbor or our spouse, who is one of our closest neighbors, if we commit adultery. Adultery has especially devastating effects on young people. In October of 1998, the Camden, New Jersey Courier gave the answers to a question asked of junior and senior high school students. Here's the question. If you could talk to Bill Clinton for 10 minutes, what would you say? One young lady who was first place winner wrote this, and I quote her. Thank you, Mr. President, for helping to shape me into a fine young model American citizen. Because of you, I have stumbled upon an epiphany. The knowledge I have is far greater than when I realized Santa Claus was just a myth designed by parents to make their children behave for an entire year, and the tooth fairy was constructed by society to mock kids with gaping holes in their mouths. You literally transformed these tragedies into child's play for me when you turned another childhood legend into fairy dust. The presidency of the United States is no longer the most prestigious position in the world. It is as meaningless as Christmas coal. I am no longer that vibrant, enthusiastic, starry-eyed young leader I once was. Thanks to your influence. Why believe in a moral, political system that subscribes to the words in God we trust from the letter of the law all the way down to its currency? when its leader cannot live by it, close quotes. Today, there is a societal emphasis on personal happiness and fulfillment. Individuals who are struggling with the sin need to make up their minds as to what is really important. Is personal happiness, that is, being with that other man or woman, really the most important thing? Scripture never tells us to seek happiness. Unfortunately, the media, as is so often the case, gives us the wrong message. Be good to yourself, the announcer says with a warm and convincing smile. You deserve one of these. Everyone should have one. Those who are not walking with the Lord and who are governed by the world rather than by the Word of God are confused. One man who left his wife for another woman was putting his happiness first. He was of the school that believes that immediate gratification 
is what should govern our behavior. He said, I know this is not the kindest thing to do, but I'm not going to shrivel up with an old lady and a lot of kids with runny noses. I don't intend to miss the last train out of town. I want to ask an important question and then answer it. Why are so many marriages being ruined by this sin? Well, first of all, we're becoming a highly permissive society looking for the new and innovative. There are new styles of dress, new hairdos, new and upbeat fads, rings in the ears, nose, and other body parts. Basically, if you can think of it, it is okay. Nothing is wrong. This kind of attitude is spilling over into the area of moral purity. Today, there is virtually no behavior and no arrangement that is frowned upon. The only exception is biblical Christianity. Secondly, women are entering the workforce in greater and greater numbers. At one time, most offices and businesses were predominantly male, but in recent years, this has changed drastically. Many women are highly intelligent and gifted and have a number of marketable skills. They are performing quite well in what used to be male-dominated fields. The result of this is that men and women are working together in greater and greater numbers. Thirdly, there is a breakdown in the family and other traditionally stabilizing institutions. Loss of interest in church, the high level of stress associated with many jobs, and the unbiblical way of dealing with that stress, alcohol and drugs and companionship with the opposite sex, has produced a morally dangerous situation. Fourthly, current terminology masks the seriousness of this sin. Clear thinking is directly related to the ability to use and recognize the appropriate words. Today, however, we are accustomed to using nice-sounding words that mask the evil nature of certain activities. Modern man doesn't like the word sin because it is judgmental and indicates a moral standard that has been violated. Fifthly, today there is an emphasis on the so-called genetic basis for behavior. Since the fall, man has been passing the buck and blaming others for their sin. Adam blamed Eve for giving him the forbidden fruit, as though Adam had nothing to do with the eating of the fruit. Aaron's response to Moses' searching question about the golden calf is equally revealing. And I said unto them, Whosoever hath any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it me. Then I cast it into the fire, and there came out this calf. Today, the big excuse is my genes made me do it, or he couldn't help it because of his childhood. I don't doubt that our constitutional makeup and childhood experiences do influence behavior in some way, but the idea that our heredity and our childhood experiences provide excuses for bad behavior and therefore should be considered in any penalty that may be applied is dangerous for the whole society. Being personally accountable for one's behavior one of the pillars of biblical ethics and morality is not a very popular concept. It is imperative that Christians are aware of the various forces that influence their thinking. In this way, we can see the direction of our thinking and be warned. We are indeed in the world, but not of the world. Today we are featuring two outstanding DVDs on the Shroud of Turin. Russ Briault's The Shroud of Turin, A Picture of the Rapture, and The Shroud of Turin, Shroud Science by Barry Schwartz. Both of these insightful DVDs can be yours when you call today, 1-800-652-1144. That's 
1-800-444-1144. You can know history before it happens. Find out how on tomorrow's Watchmen on the Wall program. Be sure to tune in on your favorite radio station or by subscribing to our daily Watchmen on the Wall podcast. Watchmen on the Wall is a production of Southwest Radio Ministries and is supported by faithful listeners like you. Visit swrc.com.